first thing that comes to mind when you think of a Michael Bay movie? Maybe it's The Rock, an action-packed film about a group of rogue military combatants who take over Alcatraz. Or maybe it's Armageddon, the movie where Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck save the world by drilling on a massive asteroid headed towards Earth. Then there's the Bad Boys movies with Will Smith and Martin Lawrence, Pain and Gain, the comedy with Mark Wahlberg and The Rock, the wrestler-turned-actor, not the movie. And that's not even mentioning the Transformers series of movies, each with budgets in the hundreds of millions and making back a hefty sum. Whether or not you like his movies, Michael Bay is one of the premier directors in Hollywood. His movies are simultaneously some of the most expensive to make and the most profitable out there. They are the epitome of Hollywood blockbusters. As of this recording, to date, Michael Bay has directed three movies that claim to be based on a true story, and we've already looked at one of them, Pain and Gain, and learned, well, you'll just have to listen to that episode to find out just how accurate it was. Today, we'll be looking at the historical accuracy of the most recent movie from Michael Bay that's based on a true story, entitled 13 Hours, The Secret Soldiers of Benghazi. I'm Dan Lefebvre, and this is Based on a True Story. Before we begin this episode, let's play a little game. It's called Two Truths and a Lie. I'll share two facts that are true and one lie. Then at the end of the episode, we'll learn which is which. Okay, here they are. Number one, the team at the CIA annex that went out to the consulate were all private contractors. Number two, for security purposes, most of the characters in the movie had their names changed. Number three, the assault was a planned terrorist attack and not the escalation of a peaceful protest. All of the answers are scattered throughout the episode, or you can stay on to the end of the show to find out which is which. Oh, and have you had a chance to check out the Base on a True Story book yet? If you have, I would love to hear what you think. If you're not sure what I'm talking about, I've edited down some of the great stories that we've heard here on the show and published them into a new book that'll make a great read for anyone who loves history and movies. Podcasts are great and all, but nothing really replaces the feel of a physical book and turning the pages. You can get your own copy or buy one for a friend over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash books. Once again, that's basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash books. Thanks again for listening. And now let's compare history with Hollywood's version of 13 Hours, The Secret Soldiers of Benghazi. The movie kicks off with a series of font screens with on-screen text coupled with archival footage. There's a few details such as saying there were 294 diplomatic outposts worldwide for the United States in 2012, including two in Libya, one in the city of Tripoli and another smaller outpost in Benghazi. Then the movie goes on to mention the disposing of Libyan's leader Muammar Gaddafi in October of 2011. According to the film, it's after Gaddafi was killed that Benghazi became the most dangerous city in the world. All of this setting of the scenario that the movie does is true, although there's a few facts that the movie doesn't mention that are worth pointing out. The Libyan civil war started on February 15, 
2011 when almost 600 protesters gathered outside the police headquarters in Benghazi. They were protesting the arrest of a man named Fafi Turbil, a human rights lawyer. The police responded the way many police forces often do, with violence. They managed to break up the protesters, but 38 people were injured in the process. A couple days later, the people of Libya responded by setting fire to buildings and police stations across the nation. And so it went. Both the government and the people kept escalating further and further into violence until a full-fledged civil war erupted. America and the allied forces of NATO joined in the fight and started airstrikes against Gaddafi's compounds starting on April 13th. Unfortunately, we simply don't know how many civilians were caught up in the middle of the airstrikes, but there was enough for Moscow to condemn NATO's bombing with a statement that NATO should, quote, protect, not kill Libyans, end quote. As far as civil wars go, it was a short-lived one. On October 20th, 2011, 247 days after the first protest took place, Muammar Gaddafi, the leader of the country, or as he was called, the brotherly leader and guide of the revolution of Libya, was captured and killed by his own countrymen. While Gaddafi's death may have officially ended the civil war, it was hardly the end of violence in Libya. For months, violence continued, and just like the movie states, Benghazi became one of the most dangerous cities in the world. The weather is getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. The movie also makes a mention of other foreign embassies closing, leaving just a U.S. diplomatic outpost and a covert CIA base. This, too, is true. But again, there's more to the story. After the Civil War in 2011, there were a lot of known terrorists in the area, and they made their presence known. Early in 2012, a small explosive device was thrown at a U.N. convoy. Then there was the May 22nd RPG, or rocket-propelled grenade, that hit the Red Cross offices in Benghazi. Just a couple weeks later, an IED exploded outside the Benghazi consulate, and then only a couple days after that, another RPG hit a British convoy. Despite this violence, international governments seemed wary of adding more security to the area. The U.S. Ambassador Chris Stevens, who's played by Matt Letcher in the movie, made an official request on July 9, 2012 for additional military personnel. This request 
was denied. In fact, instead of adding military personnel, the State Department removed the last of their six-man security teams from Libya in early August. Ambassador Stevens sent several cables to Washington, D.C., warning of extremely violent incidents in the area. Perhaps it was because of these that, on August 27, 2012, the State Department issued an official travel warning for Libya. With this backdrop is where the events in 13 hours begin. According to the film, that CIA base was protected by six elite ex-military operatives known as GRS. In the movie, these six are Jack Silva, who's played by John Krasinski, Tyrone Roan Woods, who's played by James Dale, Chris Tonto Peranto, who's played by Pablo Schreiber, Dave Boone Benton, who's played by David Denman, John Tig Teagan, who's played by Dominic Fumusa, and last but certainly not least, Mark Oz Geist. In the movie, Oz is played by Max Martini. These are all real people, and as far as we know, the movie is completely accurate in saying these six were the men assigned to the covert CIA base in Benghazi. The reason I say as far as we know is because, well, we're talking about a covert CIA base in Libya, or as is more commonly referred to by official reports, the CIA Annex. While a lot of what happened was released due to the publicity of the events after the fact, and while I certainly don't mean to make it sound like these six brave men who were officially security contractors on the base at the time were falsifying any reports, we're also talking about the CIA. And perhaps you'll call me paranoid, but I think it's safe to say that if there's one entity in the United States government that isn't always truthful about what really happened when it comes to their operations, it's the CIA. So that's something to keep in mind as we learn all of these facts. A majority of these facts come from the accounts of the contractors depicted in the film or from the official government reports. That's pretty much all we have to go on. With that said, the movie's setting up of the GRS team is correct. These six men were all former military, Marines, Army, Navy. They had all left their military lives and taken jobs at private security contractors for an organization simply known as the Global Response Staff. GRS. Their job was to provide security for the 20 or so CIA personnel who were at the CIA Annex in Benghazi. The actual CIA employees were all highly trained Ivy League graduates that were incredibly smart, no doubt, but they weren't military. And the security provided by GRS wasn't the Paul Block type of security, quite the opposite. In one of the most dangerous cities in the world, the GRS team was the barrier between the CIA personnel and the violence in the streets. Back in the film, after much of the setup of the scenario, the timeline slows down a bit. Starting on September 11th, 2012, the movie indicates some odd behavior by the local residents. For example, when Matt Lesher's version of Ambassador Chris Stevens points out a couple of guys on the roof of a nearby building looking over the diplomatic outpost walls. The movie makes note of the time when this happens, 9.13 a.m. This is probably true. I say that because we don't have an official report of the specific incident shown in the movie. We have to rely on the recollection of the real GRS team because this sort of information of what the men at the CIA Annex were doing in the morning and early in the afternoon of September 11th wasn't officially released by the Pentagon. Probably because 
there really wasn't a lot going on out of the ordinary. Sure, there may have been a couple guys looking over the wall, but that doesn't mean it's something to take note of. What we do know was that at 9.43 a.m., Ambassador Stevens sent another cable to Washington, D.C., in which he reported an increasing frustration with the Libyan people about the police forces being too weak to secure the country. But none of this caused any alarm. That was part of the Ambassador's weekly report. In fact, later on, an unnamed State Department official would let reporters know that there was nothing unusual going on at all during the day of September 11th. That would change. In the movie, it's later that night at 9.42 p.m., according to some text on the screen, that gunfire alerts the Americans of danger. This is accurate. According to the official timeline released by the Pentagon after the attack, at 9.42 p.m., a group of armed men began their assault on the U.S. consulate. We don't really know the exact number of gunmen who entered the compound, but that makes perfect sense. Everyone in the compound was too busy trying to stay safe, so they weren't really trying to count how many people armed to the teeth with assault weapons were storming the compound. According to later reports from various government officials, the terms dozen and a large number of armed men were used. Many reports also indicate the number to be about 150 men. In the movie, immediately after the attack begins, the personnel at the consulate radio for help to the CIA annex as well as to the embassy in Tripoli. Basically, they're trying to get anyone nearby to come to their aid. These are things that didn't make their way into the official government reports, but again, this makes perfect sense. After all, if your building was being stormed by, quote, a large number of armed men, end quote, and you happen to know that there was an elite team of ex-military men nearby, who do you think you're going to call? Not Ghostbusters, that's for sure. While we don't know the specifics of exactly who was called, what we do know, thanks to the official timeline from the Pentagon, is that a drone was ordered. This happened at 9.59 p.m., just over 10 minutes after the assault began. This drone wasn't armed, though. It was just for surveillance, but it helped the government officials around the world get an idea of exactly what was going on. The reports started to make their way up, and at 10.32 p.m., the Secretary of Defense and the Joint Staff were notified of the attack. But that's getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, and a lot can happen in that half hour. According to the movie, at 10.10 p.m. is when John Krasinski's version of Jack Silva and James Dale's version of Roan Woods decided to ignore their orders to stay put and head to the consulate. This is also true, and just like the movie implies, it's also true that the team was ready to go long before this. In fact, after the very first call from the consulate to the CIA annex where the GRS team was stationed, it took about five minutes for the six-man GRS team to be ready to go. After all, they're professionals. However, because they were ready to go doesn't mean they knew what was going on. They didn't. In fact, no one really did at this point. But it didn't matter. All they knew was that there were Americans who needed their help at the outpost and they were the closest ones who could help. In the movie, the team at the CIA annex can see and hear the gunfire and explosions going on over the consulate. While the science behind how far a gunshot can be heard depends on heavily on a number of variables, this is very true. The assailants at the consulate were primarily using AK-47s, which can typically be heard between 2 and 5 miles away, depending on the bullets used and, of course, the weather conditions. 
The CIA annex was roughly one mile away from the U.S. consulate, and there were also explosive devices that were used during the attack, and that certainly added to the sounds of battle in the distance. In the movie, the GRS team is waiting because they've been given the order to stand down by Bob, who's played by David Costabile. This is true, although Bob isn't his real name. Remember, this was a CIA annex. We don't know his real name, only that he was the station chief at the base, and as such, he was the one in command. So when Bob gave the order to wait, the GRS team did as they were ordered, and waited. And waited. What were they waiting for? No one knows. Well, maybe Bob knew, but we don't even know Bob's real name, and it's not likely we'll ever know why he ordered the team to stand down. All we know is what it seemed like from the perspective of the GRS team members. And according to their reports after the events, they were told to stand down without any reason why. It was a delay that would prove costly. Back in the movie, after word of the attack starts to spread, the GRS team at the CIA annex isn't the only group of Americans ready to help. There's a team on their way from Tripoli. It's led by Glenn Bub Dotery who's played by actor Toby Stevens. This is true. The real Glenn Dotery served as the most elite of the elite, a U.S. Navy SEAL, for nine years. According to his sister, in 2003, Glenn was one of the snipers positioned on a nearby rooftop when the military rescued Private Jessica Lynch from Iraqi forces. Later in the Iraqi war, he was tasked with breaching Saddam Hussein's palaces. He was the real deal. As a quick side note here, if you want to learn more about Glenn, he co-wrote a book in 2010 called Navy Seal Sniper, an intimate look at the sniper of the 21st century. I'll make sure to put a link to this in the show notes. By the time 2012 rolled around, Glenn had left the Navy, but not the conflict. He took a job in private security and had spent time in Iraq, Afghanistan, Israel, and Kenya and obviously Libya, since that's where he was when the attack started. But just like the movie indicates, getting to Benghazi wasn't going to be quick. To get an idea of the geography, Tripoli is a coastal city on the Mediterranean Sea. It's located on the western side of Libya, while Benghazi is also on the Mediterranean Sea, but on the eastern side. Going in a straight line from Tripoli to Benghazi would mean flying over the Mediterranean Sea for about 400 miles, or 643 kilometers. That's roughly the distance from San Francisco to Las Vegas. So while Glenn Dottery's team was in the same country, they weren't really nearby. It'd take a few hours to get there, and while a few hours may not seem like a big deal for you and I to travel, a few hours in the middle of an attack can mean the difference between life and death. There was no way to know if there'd even be anyone alive by the time Glenn and his team of elite ex-military contractors got there. Meanwhile, back in the movie and consulate in Benghazi, in an attempt to avoid the attackers, Ambassador Stevens and an information officer for the State Department named Sean Smith, who's played by Christopher Dingley in the film, hide in a safe room. According to the movie, both Stevens and Smith make it to the safe room, but a new threat comes when they see smoke start pouring under the door. After this, the movie cuts to the CIA annex where we see John Krasinski's version of Jack Silva looking at the smoke billowing into the sky. Frustrated, John's version of Jack asks the question that's on everyone's mind. Why aren't we moving? 
according to the time in the movie, this is 9.59 p.m., so we actually went back in the timeline here a little bit. While the specifics of the conversations between Stevens and Smith were made up because, well, we don't actually know what the actual conversations were, there's a person missing here. In truth, there were three people who made their way into the safe room. Helping Stevens and Smith into the safe room was the head of security, Scott Strickland. Together, the three men stayed out of sight of the assailants. But when the assailants couldn't find anyone in the building, they started setting it on fire. The smoke started to pour into the safe room, and the three men knew they couldn't stay there. So they left, with Strickland heading out of an emergency escape. For reasons we don't know, Ambassador Stevens and Sean Smith did not follow. When he realized this, Scott Strickland went back into the building, but the smoke was too much. So he went onto the building's roof to radio for help. Meanwhile, in the movie, the GRS team has made it to the compound and they search the building for Ambassador Stevens and Sean Smith. During this, the movie shows a group of Libyan combatants that are actually helping the GRS team, one of whom actually phones up the leader of the attackers to see if they'll surrender, shocking the Americans. Wait a second, you're talking to the bad guys on the phone? How do you have their number? And while we don't really know if that phone call thing happened, there's a very interesting point made here. Throughout most of the movie, there seems to be this air of the Americans are coming to the rescue and the Libyans who are helping them don't really know what they're doing. They seem incompetent, for lack of a better word. For example, this scene with the phone and soon after when the same Libyan commander apparently forgets to close the back gate and lets in more of the attacking militia. After the film was released, this sort of portrayal was a major point of contention for the people of Libya. The movie is correct in that it was a group called 17th Feb that was on location helping the Americans defend the consulate. That name is short for the February 17th Martyrs Brigade, which is to this day the largest militia in eastern Libya at an estimated 3,500 members. They're financed by the Libyan Defense Ministry, so they've got some of the best access to armament too. Although the brigade the Americans called on for help during the attack was correct, the movie's implication that they didn't really do much wasn't. And there was a lot of upset people about this. In fact, after the movie was released, a resident of Benghazi named Mohamed Kawiri drew attention to himself when he claimed to have been one of those who helped carry Ambassador Stevens from the burning building. More on that later. But he also went on to say it was the Benghazi locals who fought the attackers, not the Americans. Unlike the US government, the 17th Feb doesn't meticulously document every little thing, so unfortunately we don't exactly know how large their role was. In the movie, the GRS team arrives at the consulate compound, and in their search of the burning building, they find Sean Smith's body, but he's been killed by the smoke. Sadly, this is true. Sean Smith did not survive. But there's no time to mourn. Just like the movie shows, the GRS team isn't there to stay. They've come to rescue the personnel at the consulate and take them back to the CIA annex where they can hold off attackers much better. Of course, getting back to the CIA annex is easier said than done. Before they do though, there's a scene where the GRS team is pulling hard drives and as much data as they can take with them back to the CIA annex. Presumably, this is so the attackers don't get their hands on it. 
But while they're doing this, they're obviously not fighting off the attackers. So where did they go? The movie doesn't really say, but it's very likely that it was the 17th Feb that held off the attackers while the GRS team searched the building. According to the movie, on their way back to the CIA annex, John Krasinski's version of Jack Sova advises the security agents driving separately from the GRS team that they should take a left. When they leave the compound, though, they get confused and end up going left. Wait, no, there's someone there. They turn right, now straight. Because of this decision, their Mercedes ends up getting riddled with bullets when they encounter some bad guys along the way. The next time we see is at 11.31 p.m. when both the GRS team and the agents in the Mercedes make it safely to the CIA annex, albeit by the skin of their teeth thanks to going the wrong way. None of this is in any of the official documentation, so we're going strictly off the reports of the GRS agents who survived and told the tale. That said, we don't have any reason to doubt them, so it's likely that this did happen. All we know from the official reports is that at 11.30 p.m., all of the surviving U.S. personnel were extracted from the consulate. At this point, Sean Smith is assumed dead, and Ambassador Chris Stevens' whereabouts are unknown. At the CIA annex, the GRS team is waiting for the inevitable. It's only a matter of time before the attackers realize there's no one left at the consulate and target the nearby base next. Although we didn't know about this until Reuters unearthed the email over a month after the attack, at 12.07 a.m., the State Department sent an email to the White House, Pentagon, and the FBI stating that a group called Ansar al-Sharia had claimed credit for the attack. Back in the movie, the text on screen said it's 12.17 a.m. Everything is quiet. Then there's a brief skirmish when a few men attack. The GRS team is dug in and able to defend the base much better than the consulate, so it doesn't take much to fight off the attackers. While we don't have documentation of the exact specifics of the skirmish, we do know that after the security team reached the CIA annex, they were attacked for about 90 minutes. Nothing major, but small arms fire and a few RPG rounds. Well, I say nothing major. It certainly wasn't minor. I mean, they were being shot at. But I mean, there was not a major offensive by the attackers. There were sporadic advances, almost as if the attackers were testing the strength of the defenders. For 90 minutes, each of these attacks were fought off successfully. After this, back in the movie's timeline, it's about 1.28 a.m. And that's when Glenn Dodery arrives with a team of reinforcements. This timeline is true. According to the Pentagon's timeline of events, at about 1.30 a.m. is when Glenn's team of private security forces arrived at the CIA annex. While they obviously were reinforcements to help fend off attacks, the team in place had been successful in fighting off the attacks. So their primary purpose of Glenn's team was to find a way back to the consulate to find Ambassador Stevens. At 2.39 a.m., just like the movie indicates when we see the U.S. 10th Special Forces preparing to deploy, the U.S. government gave its formal authorization to deploy two special operations teams from Croatia and the United States. Both teams were going to a staging base in Italy less than an hour's flight away from Benghazi. Of course, Croatia and the United States aren't really nearby, so they won't be there anytime soon. For the next two hours, there were more sporadic attacks that the GRS team was able to fight off. In the movie, the big ending happens when there's a second major offensive by the attackers. 
they start with mortars and some more small arms fire. It's in this mortar attack that, according to the film, the GRS team gets hit hard. Sadly, this is true as well. According to the official timeline from the Pentagon, at 5.15 a.m., two former U.S. Navy SEALs were killed. That's Tyrone Woods and Glenn Dottery. We don't know if the events that the movie shows are exactly how it went down, but the filmmakers had access to the men who survived, and considering how accurately the events had been depicted up to this point, it's safe to say that this, too, was depicted accurately. But it had to have been pure chaos, even for the hardened ex-military vets in the GRS team. Mortars exploding, gunfire, seeing your friends explode in front of you. We can cut some slack here if there's a few things inaccurate in the specifics of the film. What we do know is the attack only lasted 11 minutes. Think about that. That's less time than we've been chatting on this podcast. In that amount of time, things went from calm and quiet to chaotic and your friends that you were just talking to are gone. In the movie, the final scene is when there's truckloads of guys coming towards the base and they didn't know if the guys outside the walls were there to help them or to kill them. But as we see in the film, they resorted to this being the end. This is true. As the sun started to rise, about 50 heavily armed truck and other vehicles arrived. It was the 17th Feb there to help. Oh, and that little bit in the movie where Pablo Schreiber's version of Chris Pronto was relieved because he could, well, literally relieve himself. Yeah, that's true too. Later, Pronto would explain that he had had to go the entire night. So he was ecstatic, not only that he was going to live, but that he could go off and take a dump. While the movie doesn't show it, about the same time as the GRS team was fending off the final assault, in Tripoli, the U.S. Regional Security Office got a phone call. We don't know who it was on the other end, but what we do know is the contents of the call. Someone tipped off the office that a Westerner had been found in Benghazi and taken to a hospital nearby. Assuming it was Ambassador Stevens, and also assuming he was dead, the U.S. arranged for the body's transportation to the Benghazi airport. Was Mohammed Kawiri the one that took him to the hospital? Mohammed was the man who claimed to have been the one that pulled Ambassador Stevens' body out of the building. But we don't know how he got to the hospital. At 6.05 a.m. in Germany, a C-17 aircraft was ordered to get ready to head to the Tripoli airport with the purpose of picking up the consulate personnel. In the movie, the final scene is at the Benghazi airport where John Krasinski's version of Jack Silva and the rest of the GRS team are waiting for their evacuation by plane. The text on the screen says it's 10.30 a.m. just before Jack's tearful call to his wife back home saying she'll hear about something that went down but know that he's okay. But Roan, Roan's not coming home. If there's ever a one-way conversation on a phone that brings the tears in a movie, this is it. Again, as we've seen throughout a lot of this, there is no official documentation of Jack Silva's call home. But again, there's no reason to doubt that it happened. After all, if you had just gone through hell and managed to come out alive, wouldn't you want to let your loved ones know that you were okay? I know I would. Regardless of whether or not Jack's phone call was the same as what we saw in the film, 
What we do know from the Pentagon's official reports are that at 7.40 a.m. is when an airplane carried the first of the consulate personnel from Benghazi to Tripoli. Just like the film shows, Jack Silva and the rest of the GRS team were not a part of this first group. Instead, they had to wait around for the airplane to come back. And so it was that at 10 o'clock a.m. on September 12, 2012, that the last of the Americans were lifted from Benghazi, headed for Tripoli. The movie shows four covered coffins on the runway in Benghazi. This is true. The second group to leave Benghazi included the four bodies of the men who lost their lives in the attack. They were U.S. Ambassador Christopher Stevens, the State Department's resident computer expert in Benghazi, Sean Smith, and two ex-military-turned-private contractors, Glenn Daugherty and Tyron Woods. At 2.15 p.m., the C-17 that was preparing in Germany finally lifted off. It arrived hours later, and at 7.17 p.m., the Americans, along with the four bodies of their fallen colleagues, left Libya. Here's where the movie ends. There's some text on the screen that explains where the surviving members of the GRS team are today. As we've learned throughout, the filmmakers had access to these men, so all of this is pretty accurate. What the movie doesn't mention, though, is what happened outside the events at Benghazi. Although, this makes sense because the movie is based on the accounts of the GRS team and not from the official U.S. government records. The day after the attack, which you can actually find photos of online, the Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, issued a statement confirming that four U.S. officials had been killed. Initially, the story from the American government was that the attacks were an escalation of a peaceful protest. On September 12th, just hours after the attack, President Obama told reporters the attack was because of an anti-Islamic YouTube video. But that's not what it was. At 7 o'clock a.m. on September 12th, as the first of the Americans were being evacuated from Benghazi to Tripoli, the CIA issued a report that suggested it was not the escalation of a peaceful protest. Instead, they suggested it was an intentional attack. Later that same day, a man by the name of Ahmed Jibril, who was Libya's deputy ambassador to London, told the BBC that a little-known militant group called Ansar al-Sharia was behind the attack. Ansar al-Sharia then wasted no time in issuing their own statement saying they, quote, didn't participate as a sole entity, end quote. Such a vague statement. On September 16th, Libya's president, Mohamed Magariev, issued a statement that it was a planned terrorist attack. But still, in an interview on September 18th on The Late Show with David Letterman, President Obama stuck to the YouTube story. It was a peaceful protest that had escalated. The next day, a man by the name of Matt Olson was the very first in the U.S. government to publicly call it a terrorist attack. Matt was the director of the National Counterterrorism Center. The next day still, on September 20th, Hillary Clinton used the same terminology, calling it a terrorist attack. It took over a month, but on October 9th, the State Department officially stated that there were no protesters at the consulate before the attack. There's no way it could have been a peaceful protest that escalated. Regardless, what we do know is that four people lost their lives. 
for people who, according to John Tigger, didn't have to die. After the movie's release, John, who goes by the nickname Tig, said he believes Ambassador Stephen and Sean Smith could still be alive if the GRS team had been allowed to leave earlier. After all, neither of the men died from something quick like a gunshot. Their deaths came from smoke inhalation. If the GRS team had been able to leave earlier, could they have arrived in time to save the lives of the two men? And if they had, could the situations have been just different enough that perhaps Glendotary's team wouldn't have been called in to try to find Ambassador Stevens' body? And maybe, just maybe, 13 hours would be the story of a heroic rescue instead of a sad tale of how four men paid the ultimate price. Those are questions that will always be unexplained. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. As we've talked about time and time again, many of the facts and details from the movie come directly from the men who lived through those events. So if you want to learn more, you should definitely go pick up the book, also called 13 Hours, The Secret Soldiers of Benghazi. The book was written by Mitchell Zuckoff, along with the Annex security team. That's the team referred to as GRS in the movie, the private security team for the CIA Annex. I'll make sure to put a link to that book in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, you'll love the book as well. You can find the link to Mitchell Zuckoff's book, all of the other podcast episodes, sign up for the show's newsletter to get some exclusive behind the scenes of the show, and more over at the show's home on the web at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Finally, it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, the team at the CIA annex that went to the consulate were all private contractors. Number two, for security purposes, most of the characters in the movie had their names changed. Number three, the assault was a planned terrorist attack and not the escalation of a peaceful protest know what it is? Number one and number three are true. That means number two is a lie. Well, there's always going to be some secrecy at any time you're dealing with the CIA. As far as we can tell, all of the names in the movie are their real names. Well, maybe with the exception of the character of Bob. What do you think about the amazing story shown in 13 Hours? I would love to hear from you. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash based on a true story podcast on Twitter at Dan Lefebvre, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B. Or if you will want to avoid social media, you can shoot me a good old fashioned email at Dan Lefebvre, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B at gmail.com. Let me know what you think. Thanks again for listening and I'll chat with you again really soon. <laughs>